Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and East European Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Swain. Today, we'll be talking with Paulina Bryn about her recent book, The Green Grocer and His TV, The Culture of Communism After the 1968 Prague Spring, published by Cornell University Press. The book reveals how the post-1968 normalization regime used television shows to communicate what constituted a normal life to Czechoslovak citizens. In doing so, Paulina Brin challenges the dichotomy of the passive greengrocer made famous by Václav Havel and the active dissident. The greengrocer and his TV received both the Council for European Studies Book Award and the Center for Austrian Studies Book Prize in 2012. Welcome to New Books in East European Studies, Paulina. Thank you. As a more detailed introduction, please tell us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in East European history. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me. My, well, as to the question of how I became interested in East European history, it is rather unconventional. I finished uh, my undergraduate degree at Wesleyan University, and I wanted to be a fiction writer. And I was writing, I wrote a novel, and I was working at the same time in a liquor store, and I thought, oh, this is not good. Um, and so I applied randomly to... East European studies programs for a master's degree, since the one thing that I could do was speak Czech. And at the same time that I was accepted at the University of Washington, I also um, got an agent. But I decided to go to the University of Washington. I received a full fellowship and I thought, oh, I'm just going to keep writing fiction. And instead, what happened was I became completely sort of sucked in to graduate school and to the study of East European history. So it was a sort of strange accident, but one that I ended up enjoying tremendously. And as to how I decided to write about the 1970s and 1980s, the sort of the motivation there was that at that time, when one was being taught European history, East European history, everything tended to finish in 1968. And I would ask professors, well, then what happened in the 70s and 80s? And inevitably, the only way to teach the 70s and 80s was to teach the history of dissent, or rather some works by dissidents, most famously, of course, Václav Havel. And I thought, well, this is not the history of the 1970s and 80s. This is a very marginal story of the 1970s and 80s. And so I became very interested in seeing what on earth happened in the 70s and 80s, which at that time was still quite fresh. So it was also sort of dangerous ground to step on. Um, And I remember I was finishing up my coursework by then. I was doing a PhD at NYU uh, under Tony Judd, late Tony Judd. And I was applying for different dissertation fellowships. And I'd written up all these dissertation fellowships about 1945 to 48. And one week before they were due, I decided, no, I want to pursue this question of what happened in the 70s and 80s. And I ripped everything apart and started all over again. I was faxing him copies of my um, proposals, and and I managed to get funding, and and that was the beginning of this project. Well, I agree with you that the 70s, um, which is also what I study, is particularly interesting and um, is often overlooked. I think it's now becoming more popular, but your book is certainly one of the first books to really tackle this this time period that supposedly uh, nothing much was happening, but as you show, quite a bit was happening. So this book is about the culture of communism after the 1968 Prague Spring. Can you give us a brief summary of the events of 1968 and in particular the role of television? Absolutely. Well, as we know, 1968 was known as the Prague Spring. And it really started in 1963, the sort of the conversations, the debates, and the willingness of 
people within the government, the communist Czechoslovak communist government, to actually consider debates was motivated by an economic crisis in 1963. And as reform communists, as they were known, started to sort of pop up within the government, it allowed that conversation to gradually spill out into the cultural sphere and from the cultural sphere into the streets, so to say. So by 19, spring of 1968, this was really very much a revolution of words, of media, um, and because it was such, a, it wasn't a 1956 Hungarian revolution. People were not out in the streets, and of course, there'd be many arguments made about the Czech character versus the Hungarian character, and that the Czech character is tends to enjoy speaking more than uh, fighting. And I'm not sure to what extent that's true, but but certainly this was a very different kind of revolution. And also, the for the most part, what people were discussing and debating was how they'd like to see socialism, not that they would like to see socialism go away. And that was a very important distinction. And for that reason, um, the Czechs and Slovaks believed that it would be fine, that there would not be any kind of invasion. But of course, in August of 1968, the Soviets, along with some sort of symbolic Warsaw Pact members, invaded Czechoslovakia. And in the next, oh, following few months, basically, was the gradual political turn to normalization as it was known officially and then colloquially people would refer to it as normalization normalization as you just mentioned the period after the prague spring was called normalization by the regime but also by uh, czechs and slovaks can you explain that term and and what the regime meant by it and what it came to mean also for the average citizen absolutely and it, the question of normalization is interesting because just as it's very difficult for a researcher historian to tackle the question of normalization try to define what that really was other than post Prague spring 1970s and 1980s what the actual meaning of it was um, so it was just as difficult for the normalization regime they knew what they didn't want to see in normalization they didn't want to see the Prague Spring again, but at the same time, they also didn't want to see Stalinism again. And normalization was the term that, in fact, the Soviets used. They wanted to see a normalization of the country. Uh, when Alexander Dubček, the leader of Czechoslovakia during the Prague Spring, he was basically, basically kidnapped and taken to Moscow. And he came back and he gave a radio speech. And he said, we are going to normalize this country. So normalization really became the official term for what was going to happen after the invasion. But people started to use it anyway. People talk about normalizace, we live in normalizace. So it became a term that was used colloquially as well. And again, I think this really points to the fact that it was so difficult for people to define what this now means, because it wasn't Stalinism. It certainly wasn't the Prague Spring. And the regime, which was not a new regime, these were, as I might have mentioned already, these were the men, and they were mostly men, the men that had been in power before, had been thrown out of power in a sense during 1968, although a lot of them continued during this entire time and sort of had a slightly reformist character, but these were really repeats. So you had an old leadership trying to do new things, trying to figure out what is new, what is normal now. And without a doubt, there was a lot of fumbling to begin with. The one thing that there had to be an official accounting of what happened. That was supposed to sort of define and open the gateway to normalization. The Soviets wanted to see uh, an accounting, a reckoning of the Prague Spring. And they kept pushing the government that it had to come up with an explanation, official explanation of what had happened. And the regime, sort of, the, the Czechoslovak regime sort of dragged its feet in part because it was so difficult to write. You can't say the truth. You can't say what Prague Spring was really about, about people being able to speak up, being able to talk about what they actually wanted, that they wanted socialism with a human face and so forth. And so a different explanation had to be put forth. And finally, this, this sort of narrative was created. It was called The Lesson. That was the official name for it. It was published everywhere in many leaflets and pamphlets and newspapers, and the lesson really pointed to the intellectuals, the intelligentsia, that they had been corrupted by Western ideas, and they had sort of whipped 
ordinary citizens into a frenzy as a result. So there was a very sort of um, a strong narrative of intelligentsia, intellectuals, hysteria, this sort of feminized hysteria. And so this is in part what the lesson was about. But then the question was, how do we really get this out there to the public? The the, re, the re-remembering of the Prague Spring was very important because nobody could forget about it. Everybody had been there. Everybody had lived it, so you couldn't forget. So you have to re-remember. And, of course, the lesson, the pamphlet, which was a Soviet-ordered pamphlet, nobody's going to take that seriously. So, in that sense, popular culture becomes really important and television becomes important. Because it's a vehicle by which to try to get the precepts of normalization forth. And my book sort of then tries to point how that, what that narrative was, what normalization was, and how it was communicated via the media. And the first show that you talk about in terms of communicating that narrative uh, didn't look just at the Prague Spring years. It really looked at this whole history of communist Czechoslovakia and the the 30 adventures of Major Zeman, which chronicled the Czechoslovak history from 1945 to 1975. So it's, it's taking that lesson and, and putting it on the screen. So how, how did it communicate this story of uh, Czechoslovak history? And, and in particular, how did it address those years of the Prague Spring and the beginnings of normalization, that sort of 67 to 69? Right, right. Exactly as you say, the, the show called 30 Adventures of, of Major Zeman. Major Zeman is a, a policeman inspector, a detective. And the, the Czechoslovak television, along with the, the military. Um, it was sort of be, supposed to be a celebration of the Red Army liberating Czechoslovakia in 1945 and thus 30 adventures, 1945 to 1975. But by doing that, you are stepping into dangerous territory in the 1960s, of course. So this was a very interesting show. It was very Kojak, very Stosky and Hutch. Um, <laughs> I'm obviously aging myself here. Um, it was it was not the sort of stiff fare that you would see on television normally. And actually, I'll just sort of tangentially say this, that even once the Czech, Czechoslovak regime realized that they couldn't really, they need to, the, the same way that media, that radio and television was so important during the past, they now need to harness it. Now, just because they realized that, just because they carried out a purge, particularly of these cultural institutions, these media institutions, doesn't mean they actually knew how to make good television. So when there was good television, even if it was propagandistic, people watched it because there wasn't much good stuff to watch on TV. So in this sense, it was really important that Major Zeman was a huge success. And may I say, not just a success in Czechoslovakia, it was also transmitted across the Eastern Bloc. It was very popular. And actually, they found out it won out West German viewers as well over other things that they could watch. So you can imagine this was, you know, fast cars, jazzy music, um, all sorts of things. Anyway, I think that's important to say. So you see the contrast between the official lesson and then the popularity of the major Zeman version of recent history. So, of course, when they got to those three crucial episodes of 1967, 1968, 1969, it was very carefully vetted. It was sent to the Central Committee. It, it, lots of people were very nervous about it, how to how to narrate that particular time. And it's it's very interesting, the, the one that sort of talks about normalization and about what Prague Spring was is called The Well. And it's this very unusual episode in that you do not see many scary things on television, just as officially the communist regimes were all very puritanical. Um, in the same sense, they're puritanical about sex, but they were also puritanical about sort of any gruesome horror type images. There was a sort of that wholesomeness associated with communism. So what was unusual about this was that this particular episode, which explained Prague Spring, was really gruesome. And I was actually presenting on this episode at a conference in Helsinki a few years back. And on the panel was a Czech woman 
who had grown up at that time with the Major Zimmer series. And she was not joking. She was, she still, she had such nightmares from that episode. And to this day, it haunts her. And apparently this is a phenomenon across the country. So what happens in the well is that uh, Major Zimmer, who is our, our lovely detective, who the, during the Prague Spring, he's demoted. And the whole point is in, in these serials, the, the communists were always still the noble creatures. And you had sort of the anti-communists were always nervous, hysterical. And this was really feeding into that idea of the Prague Spring as being a mass hysteria invoked by the intellectuals. So what happens, Major Zeman comes to this village where there's been a gruesome murder and he needs to find out what happened because everybody thinks it's a conspiracy by the communists. Um, and sort of what what they, the only thing they know is that a professor from Charles University in Prague was, was which is perfect, was visiting Professor Bruden, was visiting his parents in this village, village who was sort of kulaks. <clears throat> and he was found bloodied, walking the streets. Um, all the, his parents were dead, both murdered, and all the trees were cut down. Anyway, I won't go into the long story, but basically it turned out that and this is where the gruesomeness comes in at the end. There's sort of these flashbacks. And the old man, his father, it was all about greed because it's about Kulak. So everybody thought it was political, but it's really about greed. But the point is there's this incredible hysteria that's going on. And the shots are of the old man. He's holding an axe, swinging back and forth. Then he goes into a bedroom and he hacks open his wife's head. Oh, my. <laughs> exactly. And then, I might have nightmares. Then he wants nothing. He doesn't want anything living to exist in this world. So he cuts down all the trees. Then he gives a knife to his son, the professor, and make, wants him to commit suicide. Um, the professor doesn't quite slash his wrist. So his father throws him down the well. And then his father sees that he's still alive. So he throws himself down the well and tries to drown his son. So <laughs> it's completely ludicrous. But it was incredibly effective. Um, and that's the thing you, one has to realize. And, and, and I found um, in, in dissident writings, a lot of people would talk about this, that even if they were, they were political dissidents, they were against the regime. But when they were good serials, they would sit down and watch those things, even as they understood what sort of messages were being communicated. And I don't want to say propaganda, because this is, this is it's not about propaganda. It's really about... TV becoming a way to communicate with citizens. Um, and But people would say that it was enticing. You would watch it even as you were against it. So you can't, as ludicrous as many of these might have been, we should we can laugh at them, with them, but we have to take them seriously as well. And to go, um, before we move on to some of the other television shows, to step back and uh, to your reference to the purge in uh, the Czech Hotel Czechoslovak television industry, and then also its um, uh, its relationship with the dissidents and dissident community. And you talk about uh, the purge, but you also talk about how um, television was brought uh, to bear on dissidents and attempting to not only to communicate a message of normalization, but and to a certain extent, to discredit um, these other voices. So can you talk a little bit about that, about the impact of the purge on the television industry, and then also on these tensions and even confrontations between the regime and dissidents, such as the Charter 77 group? Absolutely. And I just want to start by saying um, it's it's tricky because I obviously talk about Czechoslovakia because it was one country, and they were watching similar television, in most cases the same television somewhat slightly different in regional news and so forth. But at the same time, normalization in the Slovak art in, in Slovakia was, was, was quite different than the Czech case. Not starkly different, but substantively different. And so as much as I talk about Czechoslovak television and everything, as I write in the book at the beginning, I'm really in many ways writing a Czech story here. So I, I, I feel that even though what I write does apply to Slovaks in many ways, as it applies to the Eastern Bloc generally, because what was happening here, <clears throat> excuse me, was happening across the Eastern Bloc in some shape or form. 
but at the same time, it's a more Czech story than it's a Slovak story. So I just wanted to okay. say that. Um, and yes, I'm glad you brought up the dissidents because as much as I'm sort of using socialist television serials to find a way at getting to the question of what was normalization, and as much as it speaks counter to histories of dissidents masquerading as a history of normalization, at the same time, absolutely, I have to talk about dissidents and talk about why there were so few, ultimately, about a thousand people signed Charter 77. It didn't mean that you were for the regime if you didn't sign it, but it's still comparatively, it's, it's a very small number. So it's very important to say why, why weren't they effective? Because they, they were, they were very poignant for the West. They were very important in many ways, but they, their effect was probably greater abroad than it was domestically. Um, so that's a very important question, and one of the arguments I make is that the television. Well, the normalization regime, particularly via television, was broadcasting a message of the 70s and 80s, or the years ahead of us, are about the quiet life. That we, we will offer you an opportunity to not work too hard, an opportunity to spend a lot of leisure time self-realizing. Self-realization was a very important word this time. We're going to offer this to you. Now, not, that's not a perfect offer. It's not a perfect package. But then you contrast that with the message that dissidents were putting about, out about what, you, what we can offer you is a life in truth, living authentically. I mean, this is very much Václav Havel's wonderful writings. I mean, I don't I, I've been sometimes criticized for, for um, being anti-Havel, which I am not at all. Um, I'm critical, but I'm not anti-Havel. And um, so in his writings, and in many distant writings, this was about, well, living in truth versus living the quiet life. But as some other dissidents would later say, living in truth was a very difficult prescription for what had happened. It required a rigidity and a level of, of political sort of activity that was too much for most people, that perhaps wasn't the best formulation. I, I talk about a, another dissident called Rezek, who wasn't known in the West, but was among the dissidents and was a very viable critic of Havel and a friend of his. And he talked about living in conflict, that that ordinary citizens should be asked not to live in truth, in some sort of rigid authenticity. And what does truth mean anyway? Does that mean a child is a dissident because they, or, or somebody who doesn't have the ability to lie? What does that even mean to live in truth? But to live in conflict means that you can live in a regime such as that, such as normalization, and you can act out. You can act out because a situation has happened where you need to act out, but it can also be funny. It doesn't have to be serious all the time. But a more fluid understanding of how you can be in opposition. So this was the, the sort of that rigidity, I think, was a mistake in many ways. Even as Charter 77 purposefully did not have a program of of what to do. They couldn't because they were a loose association and also if they had a political program the regime could shut them down even more. So it was a very philosophical um, association of political dissidents, which is wonderful, but with a very rigid philosophy. In addition, the critique was that many of these dissidents, they were former communists. In fact, the majority of them were. And so ordinary citizens could look upon them as saying, okay, so you brought communism into this country in 1940, well, not even 48 before that, because by 48, many of them started to be disillusioned. But still, many were not. And throughout the 1950s, they benefited very much. During the 60s, they were within the system, and they were the reform communists. They were behind precisely opening up the dialogue, rethinking socialism. 
and then many of them became dissidents not because they they didn't want to partake of that system but because they were purged and so that was another thing that as I said that sort of well these are involuntary dissidents in many cases so this is the thing so here you have a message being put out by the dissidents that is rather difficult to appeal to every person or to a mass of people rather versus the message that the regime is putting out that this is not Stalinism and you certainly can't have a Prague Spring, but we're going to have normalization and you can have a quiet life. You can have a life that is really based around your sort of everyday needs. And we're not going to ask much of you and don't you ask much of us. And that's in some ways a more compelling message. Certainly when you're looking ahead at, at that time, it was assumed a lifetime of living under normalization. Mm-hmm. Going back specifically to television and the um, messages put forth by the regime via television, Yaroslav Didel uh, really comes across as kind of the hero of Czechoslovak television in the post-1968 period. So can you explain the importance of the socialist television serial and Didel's vision for these TV shows? Absolutely. I would be careful about calling him the hero. Um, I call him the narrator of normalization. And okay. certainly he represented um, an ethically ambiguous person, which, as I write, was clear when he died and the dissidents started a furious debate in the underground journals about their take on Yaroslav Dito. But let me backtrack. So Yaroslav Dietl was a television writer. He was already he popular in the 1960s, and he was sort of the father of, of bringing, sort of the one who brought the television serial to Czechoslovakia. He'd heard about it, its success in the West, and he sort of pushed television in the 1960s to try it out. So he was a known name. But he... Something was sympathetic to the Prague Spring. In fact, I, I begin the book with a theater play that he wrote in the 1960s, which then the Central Committee, the Ideological Commission attached to the Central Committee, is looking at, and they reject it. So on the one hand, he was very much, again, a, a child, and his parents were communists, and, and, and his disillusionment came. He was at the um, Prague Film School, and Milan Kundera, the famous writer who was teaching there, he was he was let go, and that was that was Yaroslav Dietl's first disillusionment. And he he left film school and he went to work for television. This is where he championed the the television serial. Anyway, but he was sympathetic to Prague Spring, and after the invasion, as the regime realized, wait, okay, we we have through the purge, we have television back, we have our people back in there, but now we have no idea what to do because people are grumbling that television is utterly boring again, which it was, jaw-droppingly boring. And so we need this famous television writer who was so popular and so successful in the 1960s. So they tentatively let him sort of begin writing these television series, and he, in fact, has to do a self-criticism on television, which was sort of de rigueur for, for anybody who was in the public eye who took up an offer of returning into the system. They had to do a public self-criticism, be it on television, depending on the medium in which they, they worked, or on the radio, or in writing. So they brought him in, and he really, in many ways, became the architect of normalization and of the way that the regime used television to put out messages about how people should live now that the idealism of communism was gone, and yet communism as a form of government, I want to say that there's so many different forms of communism, but that was was in place, even as the idealism was gone. And so he was, he, he was that architect, and in fact, during, um, after he died, and ironically, he, he died playing tennis on a tennis court, he had a heart attack, and the very health system, which he had championed in one of his television serials, completely failed him. And he was sort of, 
his family was around him and the ambulance refused to take him because he was dead. So they had to sit around on the court and wait until the coroners arrived. And it was just a travesty of general healthcare system and approach to people who were sick or dying or dead. Um, but he, during during the debate in, in the underground press that followed his death on the, on the court, and Ivan Klima, a famous dissident fiction writer, he had written this eulogy for him. And a lot of dissidents were outraged. And as I said, they used the death of Dietl to try to talk about their own question of political sin. So it was a very interesting debate because most of them had political sin. And there was one person who also added to that debate and he went under the name of PHA, he, he didn't give his name, he said he was in the system quite high up, and he said that Dietl did more for normalization than anybody in the government actually did, and that when the government wanted to say something, they brought him in, and these were called serials for order. In other words, you ordered the serial, the kind of thing you wanted to see, get it the messages you want to see come across. And so they would bring him into the Central Committee and they would discuss with him, this is what we need to see. So, I mean, he claimed that it was that direct. So they brought, so anyway, so he was allowed to, he did his public self-criticism on television and then he really, he produced, until he died in 1983, he produced one television serial after another and he was, to his credit, he was a great writer, a really, really good writer. And, and I think that's important to point out. And that's why I say, you know, sort of, he's a narrator of normalization, whether he's a hero, anti-hero, or, or it's perpetrator, hard to say. Um, I think others can judge that. But he, um, he certainly produced very good television by those admittedly lax standards then. And so when he, he wrote something, and it was on television, they had sort of viewer rates of about 90%. And you have to realize most people had access to a television in Czechoslovakia in the 1970s and 80s. So we're talking about 80 to 90% of the country was watching this. And imagine the water cooler talk as well. I mean, this was very important. That was part of it that everybody watched. And they showed in a way where, of course, this was not that nobody had video recorders or certainly not until sort of later in the 80s. And, and so this was really, it was immediate. They often created schedules where there'd be a frenzy. So it would be every single night. These serials tended to only have 12, 14 episodes. They were finite. So we, even though I call them socialist soap operas often, um, they are finite. It's just they have a very sort of a novella type, telenovela rather type, type um, scenario sometimes. And, and so they would be broadcast very quickly, so people would be talking and talking and talking about them, and that was really all anybody could talk about. And as Ivan Klima wrote in the eulogy, he was he refused to watch television because he was above television, but he knew when a digital serial was on because the streets were completely empty, and that's true. So one of the television television shows that Dietl wrote is The Woman Behind the Counter. And you focus on the role of women, both in Dietl's serials and also in normalized Czechoslovakia. So describe for us how Anna in this show, The Woman Behind the Counter, exemplified the socialist caretaker. Absolutely. It's um, the, the importance, the centrality of women in normalization. And you do see this across the Eastern Bloc, generally very much tied into the Prague Spring, its defeat, and the way it was re-remembered in a very gendered terms. Communism had always been attached to sort of the male figure, to masculinity. And you see across the Eastern Bloc in the 70s and 80s in films, and East German films, certainly that have been written, articles and books have been written about this, that you can see in the films that were produced that there's this sort of crisis of masculinity, which mimics <clears throat> sort of this crisis in communism, of what communism is to be now. And in addition with the Park Springs, since it was seen as male-led, 
but men who um, were very susceptible to the hysteria that the intelligentsia was whipping up through foreign ideas. Men sort of lost their place in society. Women were seen now as central. They were the socialist caretakers. They could take care of the family, but also of the largest socialist family. They were, and you, one could, one reads about this in the in the official press all the time about sort of that women have that capacity to mend human relations. And the woman behind the counter serial, Jenna Zapulthem, sort of exemplifies this. It's, it's about a woman who had a cheating husband and she left him. She has two kids, two rather bratty kids, and she had a high-up position in the supermarket industry. She was a manager, but in order to get away from her husband, she takes a job in a supermarket. Of course, a beautiful supermarket, ultra-modern with all sorts of it. I mean, this was tying in also with what communism can offer. Of course, the irony was that wasn't necessarily available in the store, though mind you, Czechoslovakia was no Romanian. That's important to, to, to understand. But this was about bounty, visually, in the store, and then about how Anna could bring order to chaos, and in a sense, what all women were supposed to do. So she comes into the supermarket as a regular supermarket worker. The manager asks her where she'd like to work. She says at the deli counter, the delicatessen, and that's sort of, this was a very the, the delicatessen, delicatessen counter in the supermarkets. It was called Lahutki. It was really, it was sort of like the, the lovely things you buy when guests are coming over, little, little sandwiches and all sorts of yummy things. And, but her role really is to sort of take care of everybody's problems, all the other employees' problems in the store at the same time that she's trying to, she's struggling to take care of her own. And she does exemplify the, the, woman during normalization, certainly in the sense also that she's exhausted. I mean, she, the double burden of doing, having a full-time job and then doing everything at home as well. And certainly communism was never uh, forward-thinking enough to actually get rid or rearrange gender roles and responsibilities and duties. All it meant was women were thrown into the workplace and had what was presumed would continue very much to play out their roles of house and housewife and housekeeper and mother and caretaker. But I, I argue also at the same time, because this kind of women had this centrality in the seventies and eighties, it was, it was transmitted in all sorts of forms on, in the films, on television, on posters, that the woman was the backbone of society, even as she was exhausted, she felt power. There was power in that position in the 70s and 80s. In the 50s, it was about criticizing women for, for dominating the, the home and hearth and not, not being out there because communism was about being outside of the home and forcing women outside of the home. And Whereas in the 70s and 80s, it was not at all about criticizing women. It was about upholding their wonderful virtue of, of taking on the double burden. So they felt that the power, certainly, they, women were powerful in that sense. And I think for that reason, when, when after 1989, a lot of feminists came to the Eastern Bloc and they saw a situation where feminism was very much needed, women at that time, I mean, now it's not case, but in the first 10 years were very resistant and they didn't understand the message at all. Because one, it wasn't just, I mean, a lot of people said, well, it's because the Western feminist message is about women being in the workplace and yet these women are in the workplace and they're exhausted and they prefer to be out of it. Well, it was partially that, but I think also it was because they felt powerful. So they didn't understand a message of empowerment when they already felt it. And this idea of the the deli and the um, all of these beautiful goods and this well stocked uh, 
grocery store also plays into this um, idea of socialist consumerism, which was very much promoted in the 70s and 80s. So can you tell us more about that and how that fit into um, the regime's message, people's experience, and Deedle's television shows? Yes. The, the message of consumption in the 70s and 80s is very interesting. And just to backtrack a bit, when I had no template for what kind of research I could do on normalization when I started because nobody at all was writing on it. And the only place where there was some sort of template was a little bit of work on East Germany. And there the emphasis was on consumption. And rightly so because there was a commission on consumption in East Germany because they had West Germany constantly over their shoulder as a point of comparison. Most East Germans could get West German television, like the majority could. And so these images, this consumption obviously is, is a very visual phenomenon too. It's a very sensory um, phenomenon. And so East Germany very, very directly had to deal with this issue of capitalism offering more than, than communism. Now, so when I started the research, I was hoping to find a similar commission. Nothing like that happened. And so I, the message of consumption is very important in my book. But later, with my friend and colleague, Mary Neuberger, for this reason, we found we were always talking about consumption without really writing about consumption. So we put together a book about consumption and communism. But in, in The Green Gross and His TV... What I, what I argue is that while it wasn't as immediate for Czechoslovakia as it was for East Germany, during the 60s, lots of Czechs and Slovaks had traveled west. There was no denying now, even though they might not necessarily have the West German television in front of them, there was no denying of what it had looked like, of what was on offer. Everybody knew. Huge amounts of people traveling, talking, seeing images. And even once you could, once the regime got rid of that, you still had the memory of those images and that recognition that, which in the 50s, there was still, you know, a lot of people still believed, oh, no, we are doing better because they, they had no idea. So now the regime realizes, well, we certainly can't offer consumer goods on the same level. So we have to offer something that the West doesn't. And that is a more leisurely work pace, a more, I would say, domesticated workspace, as I argue that sort of that familial, that emphasis on family extended into the workplace, you sort of domestication of the workplace, and this idea of self-realization. In other words, that we can offer quality of life over quantity of products. And that's a very powerful message. And I think some extent it was effective, except then a lot of people start to practice self-realization through consumerism. And so on the one hand saying, go and self-realize, but at the same time, here we are in the 70s and 80s where it's a global, well, within sort of Western the Western world, and I would include the Eastern, most of the Eastern Bloc within in that sense within the Western world. Um, this is the age of consumption. And so even if you don't have consumer goods, it doesn't mean you can't become a consumer and you can't start to self-realize that way. So on the one hand, the regime was sending a message. In another way, in another way it ended up shooting itself in the foot, I think. Hmm. And you connect this idea of the quiet life and self-realization to something you call privatized citizenship. Uh, tell us what you mean by that. What I mean by that is that in the 1960s, obviously, Prague Spring, but movements across the world. It was about public protest, public space, communism, whether it practiced or not in the 1950s, was also about the public, this idea of we are a public community. We are no longer individuals. I mean, individualism was frowned upon. It went against the communist community, the, the idea of, I mean, not the Czech society ever had communal, communal apartments, but it's all part of this idea that the individual is somebody to be to be uh, 
considered suspect. And this completely changes after 1968. After 1968, the regime does not want to see people act out as a public community. And so, but at the same time, there are issues that need to be addressed publicly. And privatized citizenship, I argue, is this idea that citizens all can share sort of individualized lives, but they can share them together. So it's a sort of a very stilted public space. And in that sense, the television serials, this is an example, a perfect example, I think, that here we have, we're, we're discussing public problems, such as, in, in one serial, the, the message was about housing and the need to tear down old buildings, historical buildings, historical city centers to create those awful communist era high-rises because housing was desperately needed. And to get over... Um, people's resistance to that. So, And that television serial by Deedle, The Man at the Town Hall, it was called, it, it, re, it addressed this issue as a family saga, as a story, as a telenovela, as something people could relate to. And the, the, sort of the separation between fact and fiction was was so tenuous, too, because, in fact, it was filmed in the town of Beron, which was actually being destroyed at the time. So the scenes of destruction of historic, old, um, unusable buildings was very real. It was happening. So in this sense, privatized citizenship is about the fact that you're still a citizen, you're still part of the community, but that those experiences are no longer played out through public space but they've played out through individual experiences that everybody can relate to. And television serials were a perfect mode of doing that. And I think it also um, speaks, what was important to me was to write about late communism. And I, for the most part, call it late communism and arguing that we cannot conflate Stalinism and late communism, two very, very different um, times of history. But it was very important to me that I, I place late communism in the context of what was happening elsewhere. And by elsewhere, means across the Iron Curtain. And after 1968, the, the, the push for privatized citizenship, I would say, or the turn toward it, not, yes, push and turn for privatized citizenship, you could see it elsewhere. You can, you can see it during the Reagan years. You can certainly... Those of us who teach have many times commented on how, and generation before has certainly commented on us about this as well, how it seems there's a depoliticization. Even as you always have active students and you always had political dissidents, you always have those who are politically active. But if you're going to talk about what sort of um, the landscape, the political landscape, there has been a depoliticization, certainly since 1968, and a tendency to try to talk about concerns that concern us all, but to talk about them as, as private issues that we can perhaps share. And that's, a, I think, a real sort of rethinking of what it means to belong to a public. Mm-hmm. And, and in talking about this privatized citizenship, and even then in the title of your book, you choose to talk of Václav Havel's famous greengrocer, this passive person who goes along with the regime and his television. So why that? Why that connection between our use of the greengrocer? Well, it's, it's about those conflicting messages, as I said, of, of a life in truth, which is what Havel wanted to show, that the, the greengrocer can live in truth. If only he stopped participating in the lie. And the lie is of the way that, like an automaton, at this point, he puts out the the vegetables in his shop window and also puts up the propaganda 
um, posters at the same time without thinking about it. And if we stop to think about it and how we we are part of the structure, and in this sense, you know, Havel and I are actually arguing somewhat similar things, that citizens are part of the structure. He's saying, stop. And Havel wants the ordinary citizen to take a step back and realize that he is or she is within that structure. And in a sense, deep, so, so Havel critiques the greengrocer, and rightly so, while Deakle puts that greengrocer on a pedestal and makes it comfortable to be that greengrocer. And so I, I like this idea that we really have two very different narratives of normalization. And for better or worse, well, probably worse, um, Deakle's vision wins out over Havel's vision. Havel's is by far the more philosophically and ethically superior, but that is not how people live. Hmm. Well, one of the things that I found particularly interesting about the book um, is at the end when you talk about how these communist era television serials have become um, popular again in post-communist Czech Republic and that people are watching them um, and collecting them. So what's appealing to people about these serials and what does this tell us about the memory of communism in the Czech Republic? Well, there's that. There's been much debate on, on why they're popular, and I think that's rather easy to answer, actually. In many ways, it's a nostalgia for one's youth. For many people, it's really about watching the same way you and I would watch something that I'm sure others <laughs> would consider ridiculous at this point. For us, it would bring back certain memories and so forth. So that's understandable. A younger generation was often watching it because it was campy, and they really enjoyed that. There was a, there was for a while in the, I suppose, when was it, in the sort of early 2000s, there would be parties around it and, and major Zeman parties where the teenagers or college students would come and you'd be dressed as your favorite major Zeman character. So absolutely, I understand all of that. What I found a little disturbing was when, when I started the research, I these are not available. I mean, I, I was reading the scripts, and as I could get a flavor for it, I was allowed to see a few episodes on a projector where somebody was guarding them and projecting them for me. And then as I was writing this all up, this is when it started to happen. Basically, one of the serials was shown on late-night Slovak TV on a private television station. And it was so popular that they started selling bootleg copies in the Czech Republic. And then Czech television, which owned all of these, had to decide what to do. And they decided, okay, we're going to show it. And first they were showing it with lots of caveats, with historians lined up to talk about it beforehand and after. And then gradually just became, sorry to use the word, normalized. And these things are being shown. And in, in the Czech Republic, there's this sort of phenomenon, I'm not quite sure how it works, but they produce very cheap DVDs, which they sell at newsagents, um, that might be a British word, at, wherever they sell newspapers, um, and for, for very little money, sort of a dollar, a DVD. And first it was all the famous films from the 40s, the Czechs of the Czech glory days, the 40s, 30s, 40s, and and then in the 60s, of course, those those films, a lot of people hadn't had a chance to see, and they were all considered sort of the Czech um, legacy. And then gradually, all of the digital television serials started to show up as part of this legacy, too. And that's what I found so interesting and disturbing, not that they were being watched again, but they basically ceased to be critiqued in any way. They were, at the same, I mean, it would be great to say, yes, this is part of our history, and that's why we embrace it. And I think that's absolutely correct. But it was it's, it was being done without any sort of discussion after a point. There was a discussion that was very short-lived. In the same way that um, the Czech Republic has yet to have an actual discussion about its recent past, about normalization, it had no discussion about the serials. And I think, obviously, those two facts are very much connected. Hmm. And you are writing about 
contemporary history. Yes. You know, this is the living memory of, of many people living in the Czech Republic today. And if, I understand that your book has been translated into Czech and, and published in the Czech Republic. What kind of response did it get? Well, I was worried um, because, yes, writing, I've been aware of it from the very beginning uh, that I'm writing about something that's very raw and that is conflated with people's personal histories. So, and I, and I did have an experience where I was giving a talk at a very large televised conference in Prague, and I was making my argument about late communism being a different era, and I started having people screaming at me. Um, so I was rather worried, and fellow historians in the Czech Republic said, your book will either be completely ignored, and that will be purposeful, or you will be criticized being a foreigner and therefore it has no your book has no relevance so i feel very fortunate but i think it might also be something about the fact that now really the time has come that there's a willingness now to talk about the past but the book has been very well received and very much publicized so that was that was heartwarming to see i have to say I, and i was very surprised Great. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I certainly enjoyed reading the book and found it very uh, informative and thoughtful. And uh, we've taken up a lot of your time and you've been very patient with uh, various technical difficulties. So I appreciate uh, that you uh, uh, talked about your book with us. So to close, I'd like to ask you what you're working on now and if perhaps you've thought about returning to your roots and writing a historical, a work of historical fiction on uh, the uh, communist uh, Czechoslovakia. Oh, no, I don't think I could do that, actually. No. Um, what I'm working on right now in terms of nonfiction is called Wonderlands. That's its working title. And it's about this little-known farm collective farm in Czechoslovakia instead of the Czech part, but it was bordering on Slovakia. And it became known as the Socialist Miracle. It went from being bankrupt in 1963 to producing bumper crops, biochemicals, and IBM-compatible computers in the 1980s. It was an ultimate socialist company town, um, a world within a world, and it opened its doors on weekends and it was sort of a Disneyland, a socialist Disneyland, to which Czechoslovakia's citizens flocked to look what was happening there and to shop. I mean, it was, about the consumer's question, it was, this is at the heart of the story. And people went there, to, they had a famous racetrack to watch the horses, they had the most luxury hotel. They had closed all the um, highways for one day in the Czech Republic and expanded the road into this town to drag a jumbo jet there so it could become a cafe. It was a cafe inside a jumbo jet. Wow. Yes. And it, nobody, it's, it was a huge phenomenon. And then it, today, if you go there, it's a complete ghost town. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows about it. Um, the archives were conveniently burned and flooded, but I found archives in the secret police archives because the secret police always had a particular relationship with this place. And what is interesting, in addition, is that, in fact, its success in many ways was based on its sense of prehistory, which is if you... uh, ever heard of the shoe conglomerate called Batya, B-A-T-A, it's very popular in Europe. Um, this was a stone's throw from this collective farm prior, during the interwar years was the Batya company town, which was the largest um, company town enterprise in all of Central Europe. And it had a particular, some people say, very authoritarian way of doing business. And basically, secretly, this collective farm was copying those techniques. 
Well, that sounds like a very interesting project, and hopefully uh, in a few years, we'll be able to talk to you about that book as well. Yes. Well, good luck um, as you're working on that project, and thank you again for um, joining us today. And uh, for our listeners, we hope that you will um, also enjoy this podcast, and we look forward to uh, hearing uh, from you in the future. Well, thank you, Amanda. It was lovely. Thank you. 